Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Happy Black History Month. Now, coming up on today's program, a new poll from the University of Georgia gives a snapshot of how voters feel about certain issues from just how President Joe Biden is doing one year into the job and where they stand on some pretty important issues like abortion. Political strategists Fred Hicks and Julianne Thompson will stop by to dig into those numbers. Plus, From Beloved and the Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison to Mouse by Art Spiegelman, school bo- some school boards across the country are pulling books from you know, their shelves. I'll speak with Karen Manning, president of the Georgia Library Association, as to where this organization stands on the issue. And you know what? Feel free to send in your opinion about banning these books. Send me an email, as you always do, rose at wabe.org, or hit me up on Twitter, W-A-B-E Rose Scott. These are community conversations that matter. But first, this, as you just heard on NPR, it's the second day of bomb threats called into historically black colleges and universities today. This time, another Georgia HBCU, Spelman College, received a threat. President Mary Schmidt Campbell asked for more police officers at the AU Center all the campuses. And in an email statement, President Campbell says it's the second threat Spellman has received this month. Atlanta police and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation responded to Spellman's campus and did not find any explosive devices. President Campbell went on to say she's been in touch with Georgia's U.S. Senate delegation who have promised Spellman and other AUC schools federal investigators would look into these threats. In other news, a federal judge has given two of the men convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery until Friday to decide whether they still want to plead guilty to hate crimes charges after she rejected the terms of the deal. Judge Lisa Godby Wood accepted a guilty plea from Travis McMichael in court Monday, but not the sentence that would have gone with it, 30 years in federal prison. Members of Arbery's family objected, which would have allowed McMichael to avoid a significant time in state prison. Judge Wood then gave Travis McMichael and his father, Greg McMichael, until the end of the week to decide whether to stick with their guilty pleas. Doing so would allow Wood to set her own punishment for the men. Their other option? Stand trial for the hate crime charges beginning next Monday. Georgia Power is planning on closing all of its coal-fired power plants in the next 13 years and adding more solar power. The utility giant filed its long-range energy plan with state regulators Monday. Georgia Power President and CEO Chris Womack says the company is making investments and transforming its fleet. We are showing how we are growing the level of renewable energy in our state and responding to the fast-changing needs of our customers. 
But as regulators start reviewing the plans, there will be likely there likely will be pushback from environmental advocates, including on plans to use more natural gas. And happy Lunar New Year. The holiday looks a little different in Atlanta this year, more than two years to the pandemic. And also after nearly one year since Asian businesses were targeted in three deadly shootings. And as the area's Asian-American population continues to increase, some welcome more voices to speak out against hate. WABE's Emily Wu Pearson has more. As the Lunar New Year kicks off, some Asian Americans say they're hopeful the growing diversity in Atlanta helps bridge communities. Natalie King is the CEO, that's the chief eating officer, of Global Hearts Cooking Up a Better World. We have not only more numbers in Georgia and Atlanta and in the metro area, you know, the diversity and the number of Asians has, has grown. And I think the uh, number of people willing to kind of speak out and take leadership has grown. In the meantime, it's the small interactions that give her the most hope. Yeah, between my meetings, I'm preparing my little red envelopes home ball for my mom to give to our neighbors and the postman. We just caught him. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. And welcome to our community. Emily, she's part of the WABN, WABE investigative reporters that we have in our newsroom, so welcome. Finally, as mentioned, today, February 1st, begins Black History Month. If you don't know anything about Black History Month, then you need to do some research. If you're not familiar with how it all began, well, there's a man by the name of Dr. Carter G. Woodson, known as the father of black history. He started the first Negro History Week in 1926 to make sure students would learn about black history. And then it grew into Black History Month starting in 1976. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And you're listening to Closer Look here on WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here y'all go, the emails. Why are we celebrating Black History Month? Y'all know better. Don't send me an email like that. Come on now, y'all. Come on. Not today. Anyway, it's just one of many more to come, and especially in a major election year. Polls. Don't we love them? A recent UGA poll asked Georgia voters to weigh in on key issues from everything from just how President Joe Biden is doing to abortion legislation, as well as some specific candidates. The poll was conducted by the University of Georgia School of Public and International Affairs, and it was taken between January 13th and the 24th. And we should note that the margin of error is 3.3 percentage points. Joining me now to provide their insight into the results of the poll and some other election news, Julianne Thompson, a Republican strategist and the president of Main Street Network Strategies. And also our lover of puppies, Fred Hicks, Atlanta-based political strategist and president of the Hicks Evaluation Group, a consulting firm that specializes in candidate and issue campaigns. Welcome to you both. Glad to have you both together again. Pretty cool. Thank you for having me. Fred, how's the puppy? He is doing very well. He's learning to climb the stairs, and that's uh, 
creating an interesting set of new challenges, but uh, he's doing really well. All right, now that we got that out the way, let's begin here. A question I just love to ask. Do voters pay attention to these polls so early? Julianne, I'll let you go first. You know, I, I think at some point in time they do, but at this early stage of the game, I don't think it's uh, anything that we can really take too seriously. I mean, if two weeks is a lifetime in politics, just imagine how long the next you know, 10 months are going to be. So we've had a long time before the election and anything could happen. But what I'm hearing from folks um, are, is not what's in the polls. It's, it's not a lot of the issues that you're hearing on television. It's the going back to the main kitchen table politic issues, you know, the economy, jobs, Mm-hmm. and, you know, what makes a difference in their lives. And I think those are the things that people are concerned about right now, and those are the things that people are waiting to hear from candidates before they actually make up their mind who they support. All right. Fred, do voters care about these polls this early? I, I agree. You know, I think right now the polls in and of themselves are not necessarily moving the electorate, but they are a reflection. And I think there's a lot of very interesting information here as we start off this very busy election year, both with national implications and implications within Georgia. So uh, they'll tell you the people who are paying attention to it, uh, the politicos who are involved with the campaigns. Mm-hmm. And we're already seeing, uh, especially in the governor's race and in the primary, and Julian can speak better to it, but we're already, we already saw last week and early part of like uh, over the weekend, um, Governor Kemp's team talking about the, the results of the poll and showing, uh, using that to say that he is a stronger candidate than Senator Purdue. So they are paying attention to it and they are making noise about it and they're using it to, to raise money. And also, before we get into some more of the details about the polls, we have to remember now, even though, yes, the big elections in November, but primaries are going to be coming up soon. So mm-hmm. to your point, you're saying well, maybe the voters are not paying attention, but with those primaries, uh, I, folks are paying attention to that. Fred? I think that that's true. Uh, or, uh, sorry. No, go ahead, Julianne, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that that's very true. But I think that uh, in the Republican Party, for the most part, believe it or not, I believe that a vast majority of people have already made up their minds who they're going to support. Um, whether it is Governor Kemp or Senator Perdue, I think that the vast majority of Republicans here in Georgia are have have picked sides. They've picked teams, and right now it's about uh, it's about reaching out to the swing voters and the undecided Republicans and some independents that that may vote Republican. Really? So you you feel like in the Republican Party, folks have made up their mind? I feel like that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of division in the Republican Party right now, and I am hoping that the closer, the further that we get away from the primary, so as soon as we can get to the primary and get past that and get over that, then we can come back together as a party. But right now, there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of fractioning. Fred, what about you? Well, then it's really interesting. You know, we say all the time that elections nowadays are generally not won by large sweeping uh, margins, but, they, uh, but they're won along the margins, one, two, and three uh, percent of the vote. And it certainly seems to be that way, looking at the, the various polls and looking at how the campaigns are conducting themselves. That is the Kemp and uh, Governor Kemp and Senator Perdue uh, campaigns. Is that it, it certainly seems that what Julianne saying is correct that 
a majority, a vast majority of voters have made up their minds, but there's just a small percentage there. And I think we talked about this the last time I was on, that if you have someone like a third third party, not a third party, but a third candidate, mm-hmm. like a Vernon Jones, if he's able to get four or 5% of the vote, then that probably throws us into a, a runoff. And a runoff is scary territory for the governor. So I think for the governor uh, and for Senator Purdue, Senator Purdue probably has a little bit more space because, hey, if he goes into a runoff, Trump is here. The electorate is smaller. The electorate is more conservative on the Republican side. This is more liberal on the Democratic side. So a runoff favors him. So if you're Governor Kemp, you're trying to get that extra two or three points to get to 51, 50, 50 and a half, something like that, to avoid a runoff into Julianne's point, turn his attention to the uh, to the general election. Well, there is a question on this poll that said, do you approve or disapprove of the way Brian Kemp is handling his job as governor? And you look at strongly approved with 17 percent, somewhat approved, 32 percent, somewhat disapproved, 14 percent, strongly disapproved, 29 percent, don't know, 9 (laughs) percent. So if you're if you're Brian Kemp's team and you're looking at this, what do you do, Julian? Well, I think at this point in time, what is important for Brian Kemp in the primary is to focus on the fact that he has kept his campaign promises, focus on the fact that he is a lifelong Republican and he has governed as a conservative. And uh, I, I think the fact that he kept Georgia open through a lot of the, the COVID pandemic when other states closed down and kept our economy going, those are huge issues for Brian Kemp, and those are what he needs to be concentrating on in the primary. Well, and I believe uh, Purdue just released a new ad, and, and obviously he has the support of former President Donald Trump here. Julian, let me get your thoughts on this. Does that still carry, Donald Trump still carrying some weight? He definitely carries weight in a Republican primary. I am not sure how that will uh, how that will play out in the general election, but in a Republican primary, he certainly does carry weight. Although you've seen in recent elections, like in Virginia and Glenn, Glenn Youngkin's election, for instance, um, where he kept his distance from the former president, and he talked about those very kitchen table issues that I spoke about earlier. You know, about the economy, about jobs, about public safety, things that people really care about in their day to day life. And, you know, I think when it comes to the primary, Trump would have could have a positive impact for Purdue. But when it comes to the general election, it could flip the other way. So it just remains to be seen what happens between now and then and how much the former president actually gets involved, um, because. You know, he he I'm sure he saw in Youngkin's election that he was trying to distance himself from him, just as there are candidates right now that are trying to distance themselves from the current president. Fred, let me bring you into this conversation, because on the other side of that, of course, is Stacey Abrams and another gubernatorial bid. If you're her campaign folks, you're just sort of watching this and letting this play out in terms of what the Republicans are going to be talking about and attacking each other. And then if you're Stacey Abrams camp, you just continue to push drive home your your platform, your messaging to your base. Absolutely. You know, and the interesting thing about this poll is that there's a little something for everyone in there. You pointed out the numbers uh, from the poll overall. If you were to look at how Republicans look at Governor Kemp right now, his approval rating is at about 70, uh, about 72 percent, with 30 percent saying they strongly approve 
and only 9% saying they strongly disapprove. And why that's important is when you're polling and you're governing, you always want to make sure that the people who feel, who have the strongest feelings about you, that those who like you far outweigh those who dislike you. So in the Republican primary, Governor Kemp is in, in a solid position with a 72% or so approval rating. Now, what's good for for Stacey Abrams is that his numbers fall precipitously when you add in independent voters and Democratic voters. And so if, if former Senator Perdue can continue to pull Governor Kemp to the right on issues like uh, open carry, like uh, talking about these critical race theory things and these other things that isolate um, Democratic and black voters and pull them away from him, then that's good for that's good for Stacey Abrams and the general election. The most troubling thing to me, I think, in this poll for Stacey Abrams and for Democrats is when you look at how black voters are looking at issues right now. Mm-hmm. Black voters are giving Governor Kemp a 12 percent approval rating. That doesn't seem like a lot. But when you think about um, just eight years ago or 10 years ago when Governor Dill was up for re-election, they, the Republican Party hoped to break 10 percent. Mm-hmm. And then you saw President mm-hmm. Trump uh, in 2016 get about 13 percent of the black vote and go up to 20 percent of the black vote. And 2020, and so if if Governor Kemp is sitting at 12% on the strong strong approval rating with Black voters right now, given everything that's happened, given all the discussions that are taking place right now on issues that are relevant to Black voters, that's a solid position for him, and that's something that I'll be to be honest with you, if if he can get that up to and match uh, President Trump's numbers at 20, 25% with Black voters in Georgia, that's going to make it really hard for Steve Abrams and the Democrats to win. So. Uh, that's something that that that's a very uh, troubling uh, point point in this poll. If you're a Democrat, Julianne, what do you make of what Fred just said? I agree with what he said, a hundred percent. And I also want to go back to something that I that I should have said earlier. Um, I you know I'm very involved in the Republican Party, so I see things you know sort of from an insider's perspective mm-hmm. where the party is concerned. But I think a lot of times the bubble that we are in as a Republican Party, just as I'm sure Fred sees things as an insider with the Democratic Party, within the party, we see things a certain way. We see if activists are trending toward a certain candidate or really pushing a certain candidate in a primary. And we think that that is necessarily going to play out the same way in the election and it doesn't necessarily go the same way in the election because you're not taking into consideration that probably 98% of the state of Georgia or 99% of the state of Georgia is not directly involved with the Republican party or the democratic party. And so they see things a little bit differently than we do. And if you're looking at, and I know that this poll isn't showing the numbers of the business community, But if you just look at donations and you look at who shows up at a lot of the fundraisers that are put on by the business community, who is not uh, the business community is not usually a major factor within Republican Party politics itself as activism is concerned. But they are firmly behind Governor Kemp. And I think that is going to make a difference in fundraising. And I think it's also going to make a difference in them turning out the business community and people who care about issues that are and, and care about issues that are uh, most concerning to the business community. I think he is going to turn out and I think he's going to turn out well. 
Let me ask you this, Julian. Do you think there is a, a someone we haven't mentioned in that race, particularly on the GOP side, that might might be able to take votes from either either Kemp or Purdue? And of course, we're talking oh, about course. Vernon. <laughs> of course, Vernon Jones, the spoiler in that race. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, whether or not he can take enough votes away from the governor to make a difference. Uh, for, for Senator Purdue, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see between now and the primary as to whether he continues in that race. I I have a feeling that he will continue in that race because he he is a spoiler uh, that is taking votes um, that will and that would end up going to Senator Purdue if there were a runoff between Governor Kemp and Senator Purdue. But whether or not that that is enough to make a difference for Senator Purdue um, remains to be seen. Fred. Vernon, just curious through your lens, Vernon Jones a factor here? Uh, he can be. Again, you're not talking about him. He's not someone who needs to get 10% or 20%. He's not going to win. But does he throw this into a runoff? And I want to correct something I said just a moment ago for the listeners. I do apologize. Uh, the 12% number that I cited in the poll was the number of black percentage of black voters who said they would vote for Governor Kemp. His, and I said it was his approval rating. His approval rating with black voters is actually at 35%, and that is really troubling if you're the Democrats. Um, and I think that's also a very, a, a number that if you are the Kemp campaign uh, or with that campaign and you're looking at how to avoid a runoff, you're looking at these numbers, uh, you think, okay, if I can continue to grow those numbers, get running Jones below 5%, really below 4% is where you want it to be. You want him to, to, if this were a general election, you want him to perform along the levels of uh, the Libertarian candidate who typically get somewhere, anywhere from two to three and a half percent, anything over three and a half, four percent, you're in a runoff. So objective number one for the Kemp campaign, avoid a runoff. Um, objective number two is to hold on to, as Julianne mentioned, a uh, coalition that seems to be emerging with uh, the business community and with uh, minority voters, particularly black voters, to look ahead to November. And uh, if you're on the Democratic side, you're, you're looking at this and you have to start thinking about how are you shaping your campaign? Um, what are you going to do, for example, about black men? We know that black men are trending, and Hispanic men, and Asian men, mm -hmm. so minority men, are trending more and more conservative. Again, not over 50%, but in terms of you know, every four or five percentage points that you can pick up if you're a Republican um, of minority voters and with men is going to move the electorate. So while we're looking at this overall ticket that's shaping up on both sides, one of the areas I think actually, and I, I believe the battleground in November is going to be, or should be, or rather the election will be determined by minority men. Well, who's Very gonna interesting. Towards them? Who's going to earn those votes? Very interesting, Fred, because, and correct me if I'm wrong, the last time Governor Kemp, Brian Kemp, uh, did receive somewhere, and it, it depending on which, what you're looking at in terms of the exit polls, somewhere between 11 and 13 percent of black men voted for Kemp. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking at that mm -hmm. and you think, does he approve upon that? You, so I think what you're saying is key that you believe that it could come down to that voter demographic, black men or minority men. No, absolutely. I, I built a model the other day and I and looked at uh, the 2018 and 2020 data. What was interesting that if you just had about 7% improvement and turnout with black men, Stacey Abrams would have won in 2018. Now, again, I want to point, look at, use, use President Trump's performance as an indicator. 2016, 
he had about 13%, and that's what Governor Kemp received in 2018. In 2020, he did about 20%. And so if, if Governor Kemp is able to grow that to 15 17 20% to tackle along the path that President Trump did, then it's going to be very difficult unless – uh, Stacey Abrams, unless the Democrats shift their messaging and start talking about issues that are of uh, interest and concern to black men. But absolutely, I, I truly believe when you look at the numbers, listen, if Stacey Abrams wins this election, um, then I think that it will be with 50 and a half, 51, maybe 51 and a half percent of the vote. Warnock, Senator Warnock is, is in a separate conversation, uh, probably because of his performance with black men. But even in this poll, uh, we see that he's he's outpacing Stacey Abrams. We know that in 2021 in the election he outperformed uh, Senator Warren uh, Ossoff rather. So he and but that's also a very interesting data point that here you have a minority man who's receiving a black man who's receives uh, received a lot of the of overwhelming majority of the black male vote, and you're seeing his performance uh, in both the polls now and at the polls last year uh, reflect that. And so. If I were saying this, and this is not because I'm a black man, this is as a demographer, mm -hmm. as someone who polls, and you're looking at these, looking at these numbers, uh, black men, uh, especially, and then this are, are, are going to be a key factor in this election. And to be honest with you, Rose, you know, past campaigns that I've done in federal campaigns, uh, we have made that an area of focus, and every time we've done that, we've emerged victorious, uh, usually by small margins. And so we, we've seen that make the difference, and this, that just really jumps out to me in this poll. Something else that I want to shift to real quickly, because, again, 2020, 2022, we're still talking about this. But there is a question here that asks folks, you know, how confident are they that the, the elections will be fair? I don't know if you all took a look at that, but look, it says, how confident are you that the 2022 November election will be conducted fairly and accurately? 23 percent very confident, 33 percent somewhat confident. 25% not so confident, and 16% not at all confident. We should note that according to this poll, this is where registered voters, not likely voters, but registered voters. Uh, what does that say to you, Julianne, when you hear those those findings? Uh, that's not surprising because, if, I mean, just speaking within the Republican Party, if you go to many rallies or you go to many town halls and you hear candidates speak, one of the main things that they speak about is election integrity. And uh, that's that's been a huge issue in the Republican Party since the 2020 election, because there are people that believe the election wasn't fair. There are people that do. And that's kind of uh, that's kind of part of, of the fractionalizing of what is going on in the in the Republican Party right now. But you also have Democrats uh, looking at the upcoming election and wondering if it's going to be fair. But yet those a lot of those same Democrats believe that 2020 was fair. So. You, you kind of don't know where people are really coming from where that's concerned. I just know that as far as the general population is concerned, and that's really where you where you hear the reality of what people think. It's mm -hmm. not from politicos. It's not just from politicos like me and Fred. It's not from party activists. It's when you're sitting on the bleachers watching your son play football and you're having casual conversations with people or you're at the supermarket and you hear somebody talking in line about how certain policies are affecting and that's where you hear the reality about how people really feel what is about what is going on right now and if there is one thing i have heard over and over uh, from friends that i have on both sides of the aisle it's that they want to make sure that the election is conducted fairly and soundly and you know so i'm sure that is why uh that 
is falling the way that it is. But also, Julianne, will you admit that much of this is also driven still by former President Donald Trump and supporters when there has been nothing, nothing that leads to, to any evidence that Georgia's election outcomes were not valid, that there was they were it was fraudulent. There's nothing that supported any of this. But that narrative is is kept going by former President Donald Trump and his supporters. Would you agree that 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 still is an impact here? I think that that's true on the Republican side. Yes, um, I absolutely agree with you that it's being perpetuated by the former president. But on the Democratic side, it's also being perpetuated by Stacey Abrams um, as to, you know, the results of the 2018 election. Originally, the way she reacted to that. And then if you're looking at the fact now that I believe she has some uh, some plaintiffs in an, in a lawsuit that the AJC wrote about the other day where they're claiming that you could hack into Dominion voting systems. So, I mean, you have it on both sides of the aisle. Fred? Well, so, uh, uh, you know, Julian, you know, I love you very dearly, but I'm going to have to push back on this. So the there's not a distinction without a difference. So Democrats feel that they are concerned about election integrity, not because they feel or we feel that the 2020 election was stolen, but because of things like SB, was that 222 or whatever the number was, where they changed the rules of the game from how ballot bo- uh, drop boxes are handled, absentee ballots are processed, uh, the times around the elections and the things that are happening with the boards of elections and the things that are happening in this legislative session around trying to roll back fairly gained, earned Democratic gains. So whereas Republicans, uh, some Republicans, I don't want to say all, believe that the 2020 election was stolen, are on this side of the aisle, our concerns about how elections are going to be conducted going forward because Republicans have have capitulated so to to President Trump and the big lie, despite there being any, any concrete evidence. It reminds me of a conversation I had with a mutual friend of ours, Julianne, a couple of years ago uh, during peak round one of COVID. And he said to me, well, Fred, you know, I just don't believe that the number, I don't, I don't believe the numbers you Democrats do. I said, well, wait a minute now. I said, we don't believe the numbers either. You believe they're being overstated. We believe they're being understated. And he was like, whoa, I didn't realize that. So while yes, we had our concerns on both sides around the election integrity, there are two very different sets of concerns um, around that. And with respect to the 2018 campaign, uh, the biggest thing that Steve Stevens did or did not do was she didn't concede, but she didn't push forward on a whole litany of lawsuits. Uh, she didn't try to seat uh, a shadow administration in January. They didn't try to, they didn't, no one stormed the Capitol or West Paces Ferry or Governor Kemp's reelection or right before that. So they're not the same thing. I do want to push back against uh, equ- e- 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 making equivalencies between how some in the Republican Party and how some in the Democratic Party have handled uh, disputes regarding regarding the elections. Now, I am really concerned, and 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 I think uh, I hope there's a lot more attention given to the new discussions around the uh, Dominion voting machines and their ability to be hacked. Listen, I was in Florida after the 2000 election. I was very close with some of our supervisors of the elections in Florida. And we actually had one in Tallahassee on Sancho who did a very similar thing to what just happened, um, where he was able to show that the voting machines could be hacked. Governor Bush, George Jeb Bush was the governor at the time, and uh, they threatened all kinds of lawsuits 
And this is interesting because it was a democratic supervisor of elections who showed Fred, that voting the, systems Fred, could the, be the machines, the, the, the Fred, but the machines aren't connected to the Internet, the ones that Georgia has right now, correct? So what they were able to do, uh, at some point you have you have cards and you don't have to be connected to the Internet, but they were able to show that uh, from from the report that I read last week that they're dealing, that they're delving more into a little bit more now is that you're still able to remotely hack into, it's possible to hack into and change now. Um, that's why, and that is why Democrats were pushing for a, a paper ballot trail uh, when last year, when or in 2020. Sure. I, I want to give Juliana a, a chance to respond. I feel like I'm doing a debate, but that's okay. No, Juliana, no, go ahead. I mean, no. Before we wrap Fred up. And I are, so we're good. Fred and I are friends. Fred and I are friends. No worries whatsoever. Um, I'm not saying that I'm not drawing an equivalency as to the reason why the why both sides believe elections could be stolen. Um, yes, on the Republican side, it is being it is being uh, continuing to be brought up by the former president that the 2020 election was stolen. What what I am referring to is uh, the the J. Alex Halderman uh, secret report that has not been released yet mm-hmm. as to how that uh, how that the voting machines, the Dominion voting machines could actually be hacked. And the judge will not release the report because he says that, you know, that that will all of a sudden put elections at risk if the report is released. But at the same time, how do you prove a report wrong if you don't release the report? Is this the guy from Michigan? Is this the the dude from the dude? (laughs) I'm totally relaxed with you all. Is this the guy from Michigan? Howderman? Yeah. I don't know where he is. Yeah, I think I've seen him on like C-SPAN or something. You know what? I, this is a great conversation. We have, way up until obviously November to continue this. But I, I have to move on to my next segment because I get to talk about banning books, another <laughs> which could be a campaign topic. Uh, Fred, before we get to uh, our next, should we, why are folks want to ban books in our, in our, in our schools real quickly, your thoughts. It's crazy to me that what's old is new and what's new is old. It seems like every decade we're dealing with a lot of the same issues and, and the same books, so it's really disappointing. Okay, that's um, good enough for me. I think it's Julian? the critical race there. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you ban books, you ban the truth, and you ban people's ability to be able to look at the mistakes of the past and make sure that they're not repeated in the future. Y'all agree. It took till 142, but y'all agree. Thank you so much, Fred Hicks, <laughs> John Thompson. We'll have you all back, obviously, throughout the year. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Thank you, Julianne. Bye, Fred. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. In 1982, author Toni Morrison, along with other authors, were interviewed for an event called An Evening of Forbidden Books. Morrison was asked about banning certain books due to what others regarded as explicit or obscene content. Well, I don't really believe um, them when they say it's the obscenity in a book, uh, this dirty word or that dirty word. It shows a level of illiteracy that's rather startling. Um, Real obscenity uh, takes place on many levels. Um, What they're doing is genuinely obscene. Um, A four-letter word has 
a quality of attraction as long as it is perceived of as forbidden and given a kind of life and a kind of excitement that comes from a repressed and rather distorted mind. Toni Morrison, in her own words regarding censorship and banning books, as you know, Morrison died in 2019. Now, across the country, some school districts are under pressure from parents and elected officials, and they're pulling books from school libraries and media centers, citing that the content is too explicit for students. And here in Georgia, recently, the Forsyth County Board of Education removed eight books from its media centers, among them The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. And Governor Brian Kemp, who we talked about in the previous segment, has also signaled he wants parents to have more power over what their kids read. Well, joining me now is Karen Manning. She is the president of the Georgia Library Association because they have weighed in on this as well. Karen, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Rose. You heard what Toni Morrison said 40 years ago. Still having that conversation. What do you make of that? Well, there's a, it's a culture war in education, in education to crack down on books with quote, objectionable, objectionable or sexually explicit works. And they often feature works of blacks and LGBTQ topics. As mentioned before, what's old is new and what's new is old again. Um, in this attack, this is, we're seeing an unprecedented number of challenges and attacks on free expression by Republicans. Why is this the case now? Why, you know, these books have been in publication in libraries for many, 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 many years. What is going on with these attacks? And it often points to the fact of Republicans being uncomfortable with the content or just don't like to hear about history. You all have taken weighed in, taken a stance on this as an an association. Um, I guess based on what you just said, then we know what it is. Yes, Librarians uphold the principles of intellectual freedom, and we will continue to resist all efforts to censor library resources. You know, we're able to set aside our personal beliefs and value systems to comply with guidelines and ethical codes. And so, as you know, being able to distinguish our personal convictions and professional duties don't allow us to interfere with fair representation. And so when we're getting it from our politicians, it's a stark contrast into what we stand for. In that clip that we played from Toni Morrison 40 years ago, she also talked about the fact that, listen, not only are you trying to censor or ban reading materials from just your kids, but from my kids, everybody else's kids. And I know that each year, the American Library Association, they have a most challenged books list. And during the research on this, I was surprised to learn, maybe I shouldn't have been, um, To Kill a Mockingbird of Mice and Men have been on this this, this list. Uh, the Harry Potter series. Um, <laughs> now, To Kill a Mockingbird is considered, obviously, a gold standard for uh, American literature. Everybody's read that. But it's been on this most challenged list consistently. You know, while these attempts at censoring books for children and young adults are nothing new, you know, as I mentioned, this sudden surge in blocking access to certain titles in classrooms and schools is alarming. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you mentioned, we can not speak for other people's children. 
what you feel like is right for your household or what your value system is that you teach your children, you, you have to be open or you don't have to be, but it's just better to be open to the diverse and different perspective that is representative in these communities. And so to just wipe those away and just, you know, they don't exist or, you know, you don't have a choice to be able to say what you think is correct and what other people think is not. You have to be able to unify communities and that is respecting the different perspectives and diversity of the communities that libraries Carla sends exactly. Carla sends me an email saying, "Why does no one ask about the video games that children play and movies parents let their children watch on TV or in movie theaters?" Exactly. Now, and look, someone you... could say playing dodgeball, because <laughs> when we played dodgeball, it, it was violent. You know, I had plenty of busted lips and <laughs> nose playing dodgeball in school, and it was sanctioned. We had like a dodgeball against another whole classroom. That was crazy. And I, of course, was the leader of the dodgeball brigade. But um, have you? You all... can say those things. You can also say why isn't any books from the right being censored or banned? Why isn't the Bible that has rape and incest and things in it, homosexuality, dictionaries that describe what these words are? I mean, where does the line get drawn when you're talking about censoring something? When you have these conversations with folks who are in disagreement with you and you bring that up what do they say they dismiss it you know they caught off guard so they don't know what to say they dismiss it oh that's not the same thing that's what i've heard that's not the same thing well that's because you don't want it to be the same thing because you're only having your view and you only think that your view is the only view so it is the same thing we, when you talked about dodgeball, you think about cartoons back in the day, you know, the Roadrunner, the Anvil used to drop, you know, is that violence? I mean, how do you describe what sexually explicit is or how do you know what's objectionable and to whom? And because it's that gray area, you can't stand on one side and say that's correct and the other side is not. You have to be in the middle and allow this free expression from people of diverse perspectives as the georgia library association you all have you been getting pushback you've been getting feedback from parents saying they or anyone not just parents i want to pick on parents that maybe perhaps you all need to maybe look at this through another lens i'm just curious well <laughs> the issue is that there is a process that parents and anyone can go through if they have any concerns about materials in schools and in the libraries. Um, the goal is to provide books that reflect and celebrate mm -hmm. diversity and giving an audience to marginalized voices. So all children deserve to read books about people like themselves. Um, these challenges that we're facing comes from people who don't even know that there's a process in place and it's not just go to your state legislator. You go to your librarians, you start at the local level um, and deal with the challenge material. These processes been in place for years. Um, it can be read online at any school library or the board of education. Um, it is the responsibility of librarians to review challenges to school owned materials at the local school level. And so 
the pushback from parents, I'm beginning to wonder if the awareness because of the pandemic and you were more involved in your child's schoolwork, um, is that how a part of this started when you start paying attention to what is actually happening in the classroom? Do you think school boards should have the final say over what books are in the, obviously my public school boards, are in media centers and libraries? Absolutely. We're the professionals. We're trained to be unbiased. So that would mean that we'll have a more variety of things for people to have access to. So you think Absolutely. the school boards, you think the school board members should determine what books, I just want to be clear that you heard my question. That Well, it starts with the parents, it starts with the librarian, and it starts with the students. And then you can have the community involved. The school board, you know, would be escalated at some point if you just can't come to that resolve. Then you know, they do get involved and they do mandate things. And we do have to pull books off the shelves according to their guidelines. So have they you have all, to get involved at some point. So you would be in books. favor if, they have to, if the school board says this is book we feel should is not appropriate and it, it has to, I mean, to kill a mockingbird? No, no we, it would not be appropriate. But there have been instances where books have been removed. Should it be an option then? That if the student, if the parent, should parents be given a list maybe early on? These are the books that we plan to read or these are the books that we have in our libraries? Or I mean, you can, I don't know if you can, can really govern whether or not your child is going to read To Kill a Mockingbird or The Bluest Eye in their spare time. Because if you pull well, it from the shelf, doesn't mean they can't get it access anywhere from anywhere else. Well... It's unconstitutional to ban a book simply because the school board disagreed with its content. So that's unconstitutional. But we just don't, with this unprecedented amount of issues, we don't have enough cases that we can, you know, they have set the standard for what to do at that point. Um, for parents who oppose this type of book banning, they just need to be active in trying to be more involved in the community and understand what the representation looks like, not just about what's inside your home. So, the, you know, we don't want the school board to ban books. It's just mm -hmm. unconstitutional. Karen Manning. But it does rise to the level that it gets to them. You've read The Bluest Eye and Beloved, correct? Absolutely. All right. And To Kill a Mockingbird? Absolutely. Many, 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 many years ago. And Of Mice and Men? Have not read that. I'm just going to be honest with really? you on that one. I yeah, have right. not read yeah, that. Steinbeck read that years ago. Karen Manning is the president of the Georgia Library Association. I'm sure we'll have more conversations about the movement to ban certain books in our public schools. Karen, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Thank you for having me. And before we conclude this edition of Closer Look, I wanted to play another cut from you from that interview with Toni Morrison back in, oh my goodness, 1980. And it was for an event called An Evening of Forbidden Books. And here's Toni Morrison elaborating a little bit more on that. And as we told you, Toni Morrison died in 2019, but this is actually from 1980. Parents have a right to restrict books 
under the same circumstances under which they are read in the home. They have a right to tell a child what their own children were to read uh, and exercising some parental control over a minor. They don't have the right to tell my children what to read, which is what happens when you ban a book publicly. You are not only exerting your rights over your own children, you are imposing the restrictions on mine. So the nature of a public school uh, cannot support that. That is Toni Morrison in her own words regarding censorship and banning books. Of course, in 1988, Morrison won the Pulitzer Prize for Beloved, which was released a year earlier and was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1993. We'd like to hear your thoughts on this. What do you make of all this? Send me an email, rose at wabe. That is it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Our other producers, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Raizel. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. If you missed any of this program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 9 p.m. And yes, we have a podcast as well. So subscribe to wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.